0: Well, good morning. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Matt Hardy, one of the elders here at Cross Point Coast. I'm excited to be here this morning for a few reasons. Uh, one of the reasons is that Jeremiah is in Williamsburg, Virginia. And he is in Williamsburg, Virginia because uh, the Dumfies are launching a church there called Grace Point. Uh, some of you may not know, but we have a connection with the Dumfies from very early on at Cross Point. They were one of the first uh, families that we sent out from here almost five years ago now, to go plant a church. Now you may wonder, why are they launching five years later? Well, they've had a hard time. They've had many false starts. They've had a lot of uh, core groups that collapsed or left. They've had a a difficulty. They're in a a place that's not easy to plant a church. Uh, It's been said that the uh, Northeast is like plowing granite sometimes when trying to take hold of a church. And so... uh, at this point it looks like they have a really great group we're really excited we've been praying with them for five years we've been watching bill strive diligently uh, over and over uh, stay encouraged in the midst of, of trials and failures and we are really excited to partner with them and watch them grow and see what god would do in virginia if you want to know more about grace point they've produced these really great little pamphlets and they're out on the connections table. We're trying to get Bill in his spare time to make us some, because they're a lot better than ours, but uh, they're out there for you to to take up. And another reason I'm excited to preach here today is that this text in particular is one of the reasons I didn't go to Virginia with Jeremiah. I enjoy this text. It's one of my favorite texts in the Bible, probably because of my love of community and what it entails. I love to see God form community. I love uh, community groups. I love the community we have here at Coast. And our text today is Acts 2, verse 42 through 47. There should be a Bible near you if you don't have one. There's probably three on your phone if you don't have one of those. Or uh, you can reach one from somewhere around here. yourself there. What we see in Acts two forty-two through the end is a vision for what community can look like and what many times it does look like here at Coast. What we see is... The Spirit of God creating a unique community of this disparate group of people by pointing them away from themselves and towards Christ. So go ahead and find Acts 242, and we'll read from there till the end. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul. join me in prayer. God, we thank you for, uh, the fruit we've seen sent out from Cross Point begin to take hold and begin to grow. Lord, we know it is you who grows, Lord. And, uh, to see John Metten preaching across the world this morning to have Jeremiah and Bill be preaching in Virginia, even myself to have the chance to preach here today, God, as evidence of your grace. God, we just, uh, we confess what we sing. We confess it again. We need you, Lord. We need you. Every hour, we need you, Lord. We need you here today to open our ears, to have us see what you'd have us in your text today, Lord. We need us to open eyes afresh to a gospel we've heard perhaps a thousand times before or perhaps the first time. God, we need you to be here today to do work that we cannot accomplish, to bring conviction where required, to apply the soothing balm of the gospel where it's needed. Only you know that, Lord, and we need you to do that today, and we know that you will. Pray these things in your name. Amen. So as we look at where we are in Acts 2, I can't help but consider what's the emotional state of the apostles at this point, right? What have they been through over these last three and a half years? They got called out of anonymity, many fishermen or tax collectors. They got called by this lowly prophet, called out of their daily lives to walk around. And over those years, they watched him heal people. They watched him raise people from the dead. They watched him walk on water. They watched him cast out demons. They became convinced that he truly was the son of God. And then they watched one of their own sell him out, right? turn him in. He got falsely accused, convicted, brutally, I mean, brutally killed right in front of them. They mourned his death. They truly mourned his death. And then he came back. He came back to life. He showed back up. They were excited. They were, can you imagine how excited they were when they saw him come back? Then they walked with him again for 40 more days. And then we see Acts six. we see their question. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? Like, is it time now? Are we, are we gonna like take charge and conquer, and now's going to be the time. You can't even be killed. We got, we got this guy who in in can't be defeated. And, and he says to this to them, Christ said, no. He said, now's not the time. But I'm going, to, I'm going to leave you a promise of the Holy Spirit. And he does that, and then he leaves. He goes to heaven. And he leaves them looking up at the sky. So these guys have had some highs, some lows, some confusion in between victories and defeats and everything. And that's where we are today. We see the apostles for the first time begin to remember what Jesus had told them over and over again. And we see them, uh, we see them go and we see them uh, replace Judas. Then they wait for the spirit and the spirit comes in a major way with rushing winds and fire and tongues. And it, it's, again, we see Peter stand up and what does Peter do? He stands up and preaches a sermon where he fulfills the command of Acts 1, and he's a witness to Jesus Christ, right? He's witnessing to everything that he saw. So as we look at this text today, we're going to spend a lot of time in the first verse. It's, the first verse is the day-to-day life of the gathering of the church, the first gathering of Christians after Christ has gone back to heaven. We get a sneak peek back 2,000 years into what the first church looked like, what it was to be a Christian when being a Christian was new. What do we find? We find a devoted people. We find a group of recent Jewish converts numbering a little over 3,000 in total. We find Peter witnessing to the authority and the authenticity of Jesus Christ as the son of God and victor over death. We see the apostles, like I said, they really start to get it. They understand that they are the torchbearers now. They are the witnesses. and They have to do what they've been taught. Christ is gone For who knows how long now. They don't know if he's back in 40 days, 40 years, 4,000 years. And their assignment was made clear. They're to be witnesses. So, what we see in this first verse is a reflection of that. We see the teachings of Christ being played out in the day to day life of his followers. We see four specific devotions of these earliest Christian worshipers. One, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves to fellowship. They devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. They devoted themselves to prayer. Sounds a lot like what they saw Jesus do for three and a half years while they walked with him. Sounds a lot like what they witnessed Christ do and what they did themselves with him. As Jeremiah told us last week, we know what the apostles were teaching. They were teaching Christ. Nothing more, nothing less than Jesus Christ, his authority, his message, his teachings, his life, death, burial, and resurrection. We see Paul hold out the importance of this later in his letter to Timothy. First Timothy 4.13 Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Second Timothy 4.2 Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. So we know the importance that teaching had in Christ's own life. Christ would preach when he was exhausted. He would preach when he was sad. He would pull away from the crowds, and the crowds would follow him, and he would preach. He would preach when he was nailed to a cross. He thought teaching was important, that preaching was important. It's that teaching that the apostles are doing that's key to everything else we see in this text. Teaching of Jesus, the teaching of Jesus himself, that's what allows the miracle of community that we witness here today. Without this teaching and the regeneration that it produces, there is no possibility for true community to take root. I'll say that again. Without the teaching and the regeneration that it produces, there's no possibility for true community to take root. We know that because we see what a life is without regeneration in Ephesians 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedient, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's who we are without regeneration. People like that don't make for good community, that's for sure. That's who we are before we're born again. If you've had children, I know many of you have children and are about to have children, you'll find out that children are self-absorbed. They're selfish, right? They don't care. Babies don't care if you have to work tomorrow. Babies don't care if you haven't slept in four months. If they're tired, hungry, bored, they'll cry and scream and expect you to satiate every need. Now, as the kids get older, maybe the crying diminishes. I think uh, peer pressure at school maybe calms that down a little bit. But they're they're still there. They still expect their needs to be met. They still need and want and want and are selfish. Adults, left to our own devices, are pretty selfish as well. Without a new heart, without Christ, there are some who give, There are some who are generous, but when asked for their real reasons, few are selfless. A true community that lives selflessly without Christ is not something we see very often in this world. What we witness in this church, though, the early church, is the consistent pointing to Jesus Christ. We know what the apostles are teaching. We see it over and over again in Acts Almost a third of the text in Acts is sermons. And from those sermons, we see a pattern. Christian leaders rise up, preach the gospel. Listeners are converted, and the church grows. Opponents come and persecute the Christian leaders. God intervenes and rescues the leader and protects his church. This plan to preach the gospel, for God to add to their number, wasn't a plan that the apostles came up with in the upper room. They didn't come up with the plan after, re- after reading the, the Purpose Driven Church book. It wasn't some latest fad to grow the church. It's all they had. It's all they knew. And as I shared it in the back this morning, thank God we haven't evolved past that. All we have is to preach the gospel. The pattern shows it worked. This plan worked. We see God building his church in the face of persecution. Through the priest's word, we see a church that can withstand opponents and attacks. We see a church that God himself is interested in preserving. Everything else, the devotions and all the results are all keyed in on this first primary essential devotion to the teaching of Christ by the apostles. Let's keep that in mind as we go forward. Next, we see a devotion to fellowship. It's more than just the English word makes you think of. It's a, it's, a, it's a devotion to participation, a devotion to belonging, a devotion to sharing, even to sharing of material goods. We'll see that detailed further down. We begin to see a people who have been shaped by what they've heard. We see a people who are looking to Christ before self. And in the devotion to teaching, they saw a beautiful gospel that superseded even their selfishness, that superseded their covetousness, and led to a people who could give freely of even their material possessions. These were former Jews who would have been familiar with the many, many verses in the Old Testament about taking care of each other. Proverbs 28: "Whoever gives to the poor will not want, but he will hide his eyes, will get many a curse." Deuteronomy fifteen seven through eight. If there is a poor man with you, one of your brothers in any of your towns, in your land with which the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart nor close your hand from your poor brother, but you shall freely open your hand to him, and shall generously lend to him sufficient for his need in whatever he lacks. The apostles, of course, would be familiar with Jesus' many teachings, like Luke 12, twelve twelve thirty three. Sell your possessions and give to charity. Make yourselves money belts, which do not wear out. And then failing treasure in heaven, where no thief comes, nor mock destroys. So the idea of holding possessions loosely might not have been a new idea for these people, but they had never seen it more clearly demonstrated than what Jesus did. The man who possessed literally everything. Everything in creation was his. And he laid it down and became a man, counted equality with God, not something to be grasped. The next devotion we see is a devotion to breaking bread. Now, if you're with us not that long ago, we recently went through the book, Meals with Jesus. And in that, we saw uh, Jesus reclining at the table with sinners and saints over and over again. He did it so often. Uh, Luke 7 says, the son of man has come eating and drinking and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Jesus ate so often they thought him a glutton, drank so often they thought him a drunk, and obviously neither was true. Jesus understood, about the, Jesus understood something about the way people were created, because he created them. And he knew that there was something special about the power of a shared table. The apostles understood this as well. After seeing it over again with Jesus, the apostles have been given a command only a few weeks back as well, the Passover feast in Luke 22. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes again. And he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. They were commanded to take of the Lord's supper and to do it in remembrance of Christ. The breaking of bread that was going on in the early church would have included this remembrance as well. The next devotion was to one of prayer. Just like the others, this was modeled by Jesus. Jesus taught us to pray with the Lord's Prayer, and he showed us how to pray over and over again. He modeled prayer, even for our benefit, when he was raising Lazarus in John 11. So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. Jesus prayed in the garden. Jesus prayed on the cross. Jesus prayed to show us our great need for prayer. Because if Jesus needs to pray, how much more do we need to pray? The early church understood this need for prayer. And I assure you, it was modeled from the apostles down. The final devotion is a little further down the text, but I wanted to pull it forward for the sake of organization. What we see is they were devoted to attending the temple The temple was a place to come together. It was a place to come and get aligned and reminded. It was a a place to talk about the things of God. It would have been a place to practice each of these devotions as well. Now, we think of temple maybe a little differently because this church would have been gathering, most likely, in people's homes. Uh, They probably didn't have a temple that would hold 3,000 at that time. So, it was a place to come centralized. It was a place to gather uh, and talk about God. Luke 2, 46 through 49, we see what Jesus, uh, how he valued the temple, even from an early age. This is the when Mary and Joseph lost Jesus at the age of 12. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Of course, right? When we lose a 12-year-old boy, we should go check church and see if they're engaging the pastor in deep conversation. That's where we would all look, right? Jesus understood the importance of the temple. We read from the account of John Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken us forty-six years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered what he had said, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. See, the apostles remembered that there would be a new temple in Jesus Christ, and they saw it torn down, and they saw it rebuilt, and they believed what was spoken. They realized the true significance of the temple now, that it was more than just a building. It was a symbol for our union with Christ together. And it was a new temple that would never be destroyed again. And that's the idea that they taught with. That's the idea that they taught Christ with. That they had a church that took part in fellowship and breaking of bread and prayed with that idea. So that's, that's the first verse of the section. I promise we're going to go faster or else we'll be here all day. We'll never make it to lunch. Um, so look at verse 43 and we begin to see some results of this devotion All came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. So we we know that miracles were continuing. The apostles were doing many of the same miracles that Christ was doing when he was walking. So we, we also know that the miracles had the same purpose, right? The signs were there to prove both the messenger and the message to be authentic, You notice we don't see a devotion to signs and wonders. There's no devotion listed for that. Because uh, they must have been amazing. It says they were. It says they were awe-inspiring. But what they did is they pointed back to Christ. We often get caught up looking for signs and wonders ourselves as an end, instead of, of a means to an end that points us to Christ. Obviously, people benefited from the healings, from the signs and the wonders. Right? It benefited from Jesus when he was walking around and healing people. But that was just a pointer. It was just meant to authenticate the messenger was who he says he was and that the message was real. Let's take Lazarus. We talked about him earlier. Lazarus benefited greatly. He was dead and then he wasn't dead. That's, that's a good benefit. But what we know is that Lazarus isn't here today, right? It was recorded, wasn't recorded in scripture, but Lazarus died again, right? All the blind, the mute, the deaf, the lame, the leprous, that Jesus healed, they all died later, right? They're not still walking around. So they did benefit at the time, but their benefit wasn't the only goal. It was to point to Jesus, Purpose was to point to God, who was in absolute control over sickness and death, but he had the power to control even that. Verse 44, we see another miracle that's produced by the Holy Spirit. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. Further back, there was a list of Pentecost, of the people who came to Pentecost, and uh, I had a, had a slide that had a map, but we don't have slides this morning. So you'll have to picture this in your mind if you're good at geography. That people from the following groups, the Parthians, the Medes, the Elamites, Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phygria, Pamphylia, Egypt, Libya belonging to Cyrene, visitors from Rome, Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. So widespread, to say the least, people from all over the known world at the time. And then we see 3,000 more added to the group. And then verse 44 says, all who believed were together and had all things in common. So something happened here. Think about the differences in those people. Think about the upbringings, their households, cultural norms, languages, expectations. And these people come together. And not long after, it's said that they have all things in common. So a miracle was performed, we know. Now, did God change their personalities? Did God erase everything that made them different? Well, we don't see any evidence of that anywhere in scripture. So something else is happening. Think about this. When's the last time you worked with a group? You worked with three, four, five people to try to accomplish a singular task. You quickly find out that you don't have everything in common and that it's hard to work together. Uh, but these people, 3,000 people, it said, have everything in common. So what we do see, though, is we clearly see people have much in common and they share each of the devotions that we listed in 42. Perhaps it's this, then, that we should take to mean all things. Perhaps our definition of all things is, is wrong. When a people are gathered around a devotion to Christ, the temporal differences begin to fall away. When Christ is at the center, and we attain a new identity in him. That new identity is all-consuming. I can tell you that some of the most beautiful moments of community are when I see people come together around the gospel and become friends. It's often people who would never otherwise intersect From a purely worldly perspective, there's no reason for these two people to be in the same room, let alone be friends. But when they become unified in a devotion to Christ, we see some of the most beautiful friendships occur. It must be true that our new identities are so much more important than our old identities. We can lose the label of occupation, social class, age, race, gender, We can all look at Christ together to say, now we have all things together in common. Unashamed to say we may look different to the world, but in Christ, we have all things in common. It's with that in mind that we look at the next verse, 45. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Now, this is where you get scholars or lay people alike who begin to discuss, is Acts descriptive or prescriptive? Is Acts telling us a story of history or is it telling us what to do? It's funny how it usually springs up around this verse. Right? It's, uh, should we be doing what it says? If you look at the devotions that is listed so far, they all seem like pretty good things, right? It all seems like things we should be doing still. And the church is doing still. We come together in, in unity around a Christian identity. We break bread. We share. Right? We pray. We're devoted to teaching. So why is it that 45 makes us squirm in our seats a little bit? Well, I thought about that a lot when I was preparing, and I had to think, is it the selling of possessions that makes us squirm in our seats? I don't know. I see people here sell things all the time. I see people uh, that I'm Facebook friends with always have stuff in the swap and shop groups, and people sell houses, and people sell cars, and people sell furniture. I, see people, I bought stuff from people here. Uh, so I don't know if that's it or not. What I think is hard, and what's hard for me, as the last four words, as any had need, I think that's what scares some of us. What that means is we would have to share our needs when we had them. Not just financial, not just uh, needs for possessions. We'd have to share our needs with others and we'd have to be willing to accept help. I know for sure that if I stood up here this morning and presented a need that a partner had, uh, I would see it filled because I've seen it happen over and over again here. I'd see a flood of support come in. I also know that there's many who need help who aren't asking. And the reason for that is pride. To ask for help requires us to humble our hearts, to step off our thrones in our little kingdoms and come to a brother or sister and seek assistance. That's what was happening, though, in the early church. People were not only willing to give, they were willing to ask. They were willing to seek assistance. We see in response in the next few verses, we see a glad and generous people praising God. These people weren't bummed out that their neighbor asked for something. These people weren't depressed that they had to share their possessions. We see a glad and generous people. You see, when we have been pointed well to Christ and we find our identity in him, we no longer see our possessions as ours. And instead, we gain the understanding that they are all God's. It's only then that we begin to hold our stuff with a loose grip and take joy in giving it away. We get caught up in pretending and performing. We get caught up with pride. Not only do we hurt ourselves by not receiving or asking for help, we're actually denying a brother or sister the joy of serving us and serving God. If you find yourself unwilling to ask, if you find yourself unwilling to give, I would call you to repentance and then belief that we have a good father that provides for us anytime we ask. So we've seen many benefits so far, awe, unity shared and met needs. All these as a result of a devoted life. As we look forward, we see even more verse 46 and day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes They received their food with glad and generous hearts. So we see evidence of a people who's had change in their life, their ordinary lives, their lives at home are changed. The mundane details of how they eat has changed. It's not just a public change with a different story at home. Now, these Christians were glad and generous. They were drawn together with each other in each other's homes. In the temple, drawn to the things of God, they experienced a true change of heart. And the fruit of that change was evident in private and public. So these were a devoted people. They took the study of the word, gathering prayer, community care, sharing life together. They took it all seriously. And they were still glad and they were still generous. I wonder is that the word most people today would use to describe a Christian glad and generous? Perhaps the issue isn't that the public may not use the words glad and generous. To describe the average Christian, perhaps the bigger problem is that they may not use the word devoted to describe us first. In the final verse of our section today, we see the workings of God again displayed for us to see. Verse 47, praising God and having favor with all the people and the Lord added to their number day by day, those who were being saved. So the church existed to praise God. And it still does. And it may strike you as odd or conceited. That's one of the primary purposes of the church is God's praise. We are gathered not just to enjoy the benefits, not just to have glad and generous hearts, not just to have happy meals and gatherings with friends and pray together. We exist to the glory of God. Ezekiel 36 documents this well when we see God gathering up his Jews to form a people. It's a bit of a long text, uh, verse 22. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came, that I will vindicate the holiness of my name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, When through you, I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit and I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, to be careful to obey my rules. So it's one of God's great kindnesses, one of God's great graces that he's chosen to align his glory and our goodness together. We benefit from his glory. He declares it right from the start of the passage in Ezekiel. It's not for your sake, but for the sake of my holy name. But when you look at chapter 36, it's full of benefits for the people. And there's a lot more of You read further down. It says, just in our text, it says, they will be cleansed. They will be given a new heart. They will be given God's spirit. They will be given the ability to obey. It's the same thing in Acts. The benefits are abundant to the people. And it results in the Lord's holy name being lifted high. Their benefits, our benefits, and God's glory tied closely together. We see a few more pieces of information here. We see the early church even found favor with all the people. So I know Jeremiah has shared this a couple times before, but it applies here as well. If our neighbors only know us as Christians, and that's all they know, a label, it may be easy for them to hate us, right, to judge us. But if our neighbors know us as glad and generous people, It's much more difficult for them to despise us, right? And that's what was going on here. The early church was known as glad and generous. They had a reputation that they were upholding. And finally, we see that the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. Who does Luke credit in the end for adding to the church? He credits God, right? He didn't credit the church. It looks like maybe he could, if we look at it. This is, a, this is a pretty good church, right? It's a church we could aspire to. They're full of devoted people, praying all the time, gathering all the time, community group every day, right? It's, it's pretty good stuff. They're hardworking. They're known for being glad and generous in the community. They have favor with those outside of the church. They have heart change in public and in private, Surely the church is saving people. No, we see it right there. It's the Lord alone who saves. It is the Lord who added to their number day by day, those who would be saved. So what's this mean for us, for church and for individuals? Are we relieved of our responsibilities since it's God who saves? Did the church need to be devoted? Do they need to work hard? Yeah, I would say certainly they do, right? We're not relieved of our responsibilities. We are still called to labor, we are still called to invest. I'd say it's even a deeper call to devotion. In Corinthians 3, 6, uh, Paul says this, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. God's building. We are called the plant. We are called the labor. We are called the water. But it must be done with a proper understanding that it's not our works that produce anything. It is God alone who saves. This should encourage us to work without the pressure of having to save people, right? We get to work hard and point well. That's our job. It should allow us to enjoy the benefits of what God is doing in us and through us and then freely offer Him praise. So these works, these devotions of the early church are often referred to as the ordinary means of grace. It's a devotion to preaching, learning of scripture, the gathering of the saints, prayer and fellowship. They're not deeply complicated things to learn or understand. They are, however, not always easy to practice, right? Live in a world that is constantly seeking devotion, a devotion to anything and everything else. Devotion to family, devotion to work, devotion to education, to Netflix or friends, devotion to sports, devotion to politics, devotion to celebrity. The competition for our devotions is endless. So we have to evaluate where our devotions lie. We have to do that every day. We have to do it like David did it when he asked the Lord to search his heart and expose the truth. We're called back into these ordinary means of grace to realign our devotions once again with the help of the Lord. But simply practicing the ordinary means of grace, simply coming to church and community group, simply praying and seeking fellowship is not a special recipe or a formula that says, if you do this, then God will do that. If you work like this, if I practice community, if I give generously, then God will do this. It's not how it works. We can't pretend for God. We can't perform for God. I'd wager that there are those here today who are doing just that, though. And I would invite you to lay your striving down. The work's been accomplished. We don't have to work like that. We have to get to work out of joy. The salvation has been completed. It was the work of Christ. He took all of our sin he took all of God's punishment, all of God's wrath upon himself, and in exchange, he gave us his righteousness. He gave us not only eternal life, he's given us a new life here, a renewed life, a life where we can labor and work hard, but not in an effort to save ourselves, an effort to give him praise, the praise of the one who's done so much for us. Our job is to point to Christ together and to sing his praises. Our job is to to labor in the ordinary means of grace that have been provided and then repent when we find our devotions wandering. After we repent, we ask the Lord for his grace and help in realigning our devotions. We do this over and over and over and over. We have a confession every Sunday for a reason. We don't need one every Sunday. We need one every day. The Christian life is to be a life of constant repentance that we will repeat until we are dead to self or more likely just dead. It's not complicated, but it sure isn't easy either. That's why we're called to do it together, which is an encouragement. That's why we're called to do it in the strength of Christ that he provides. We're called not only to point our own hearts back to Christ, we're called to point each other's hearts back to Christ and to that singular devotion. I, for one, praise God for my deep need of community and his ample provision of it, as well as my great need of himself and his ample provision of it. He is both kind and good to provide that for us. Join me in prayer. God, thank you for your provision, Lord. Thank you for your kindness and your goodness in providing Lord, these means for us to worship you. Lord, you have given us so much when you've given us your son. Lord, I pray for uh, this week as we go out and join each other that we would uh, help each other. Lord, that we would point each other well to you, Lord. That we would point each other well to what you have provided already. That we could lay our striving down, Lord. That we could truly evaluate our devotions with your help that you would open our eyes that you would open our ears and our hearts that we could ask each other what are you devoted to this week and lord that we would see you as worthy that we would see you as beautiful lord that we would count the costs and lord that by your grace you would continue to draw us to yourself pray these things in your name